Father in heaven, we thank you for these wonderful words, Lord. They lift us up from the deepest depths and send our spirit high. We thank you for the hope and the faith and love built into this praise chorus to you. We pray now, Lord, for your sermon. We pray for our own hearts that we would be cleared of distractions and that we would focus on what you have to say to us today and be eager and willing to put it right into practice in our lives. We pray for our pastor, Emmanuel. May your grace and peace and joy be upon him as he preaches your word. Amen. Again, welcome. I'm so glad you're here watching. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, which was just read. Not really doing a verse-by-verse or a careful exegesis of the passage, but I'd like to lift up a few themes. We know that when we turn our attention outwardly, there's fear and panic in the streets. People are emptying the grocery shelves. They're stocking up on everything. They're stocking up on water. I don't understand. I don't think this virus really affects our faucets, and yet people are doing that, and they're stocking up on toilet paper. I don't know if you saw this picture that's been making the rounds on the internet. It's a nice offering plate, and it has a toilet paper roll on it, and underneath it says, the widow gives her last roll of toilet paper. What a sacrifice. It seems that way to many people these days. I'm not making light of this, though. I think this is a serious business, this epidemic that's really hitting not just our country, but the whole world. It's a great threat. And our love for our neighbors means that we have to be concerned, of course, for our safety, for the safety of those who are vulnerable in our congregation, but also for the safety of our community. We want to do our part in helping to stem the increase of this virus. And so as Christians, as we meet, our poor hearts quake when we see these things. Scripture says that God knows that we're frail, that we're made of dust, and so our hearts begin to quake and we turn to our Lord and say, what can you say to us? What can you say to your children? And so I turn to this very familiar passage, Romans chapter 8, and I want to point out a few truths which are at the foundation of our lives. The virus will be gone, but these truths will remain forever and ever. If you're at home and you have your Bibles or on your phones, turn to Romans 8 as I look at a few of these promises and realities which Paul points us to. So I'm going to point to three things. First, that God is sovereign. It's really a theme in the Bible from the opening to the last pages. It's behind and interwoven into the whole of Romans 8 here. This profound truth which comforts us because we realize that we're really not in control of our lives. And so our question then becomes, well, who is in control? And the answer is God is sovereign. So that's the first truth I want you to jot down on your hearts that God is sovereign. In fact, it's the one thing we should rejoice in is that God is sovereign and no human being. That God is sovereign, no process, no occurrence, no disease has that kind of power. There are many who think that our life is in the control of chance, of forces that we can't control. We're buffeted this way and that way and we have no power to control it. We're lifted up or we're thrown down by these things. There are some who say that what's happening now with this coronavirus is just the normal evolutionary struggle of organisms. There's the coronavirus and there's us. 
two combatants in the ring and let's see who finally wins. And in that case, there's nothing left for us but fear. What can we do but be afraid for our lives? But it's just as frightening, at least for me, to think that a person, a man, a woman, or a group of men or women are in charge of our lives. Because no matter how bright they are, no matter how well-intentioned they are, no matter how many of them they are, they're still fallible. And I think as we see good people dealing with this epidemic, we see the fallibility of the best of human science and medicine. It's hard to trust them because it's hard to trust humans because they're like us. They're not perfect, they're fallible. It's like that story about the Quaker you may have heard, you know. He turns to his wife and he says, in the whole world, I trust nobody but me and thee. And sometimes I wonder about thee. Yeah, who do we trust? We can't trust those even closest to us. So we have to rely on the Lord. So here's that sharp contrast. God's people rejoice that our God rules. It's a cause of praise and glory. Psalm 115, and then it's repeated in Psalm 135, says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God's people rejoice that we don't live in a democracy. Imagine what the universe would be like if we had to vote on what would be happening. Oh my goodness. If we had to you know, be fed political ads all day long, manipulated by this and that, and then had to vote in our ignorance for what the universe should be doing. It's not a democracy. It's a wonderful monarchy, but the king of kings is perfect and good, and he does whatever he pleases. So that brings joyous praise from God's people. Verse 30 of Romans 8 says, here's how he displayed his sovereign work in our hearts. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's talking about you. He's talking about God's people. And what then? What's the response to this? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's that victorious song of praise. If God is for us, who can be against us? The sovereign king is for us. He's not waiting on data from China or Italy or Europe or the CDC. He's not meeting with counselors of other brilliant people to say, what do you think I should do? He's certain of what he should do. And what he does is wise and good, and it's full of his love. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? That leads to the second thing. The first thing is our joy, our praise that a sovereign God rules. The second is that this God is for us, that absolutely he is for you. So let me read again, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Honestly, there's many people, maybe many who are watching, who think that there's no one who's really for them. I talk to many people who aren't sure that there's anybody who's wholeheartedly for them. They feel alone, especially when they face a crisis like this. Is there anybody who's watching out for my good, with no agenda, with no other motive in mind? Maybe you felt that there was someone when you were children, you know, your parents were always there, always watching out for your good. Maybe you felt it was a little overbearing, in fact. 
I have to say, when I look back at my dad, I think how much he would push me forward with other people. How he'd sing my praises, always exaggerated. And it would be embarrassing, and I, I used to hate it. I'd say, no, 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 that's not true. Please don't say that anymore. And then he passed away. He's gone home, and I, I miss it. Because I knew he was wholeheartedly for me. He gained nothing, and yet somehow he had joy in promoting me. Is there anyone like that in our life that just loves us wholeheartedly? And for many people, the answer is there's no one like that. No one who checks on me when I'm alone. I might have been alone in my apartment, room, or home for a long time, and no one's called. No one's called except when they want something done. There's no one who wonders why I look tired and ask me about it. There's no one who notices when there's a sadness in my heart and can read it on my face. There's no one who's wholeheartedly for me. Many of us think that way, but this verse says that's not true. God, the King of Kings, is for you, wholeheartedly for you. And so Romans 8, 28 says, under his sovereign hand, all things work for good for his people. Look at verse 28. Let me read it again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. King of kings is for you. He notices what's happening in your heart and he is working for your good. And so he says all things work for your good. This is a universal statement, all things. That is things before your birth, things involving your parents, Things involving your grandparents and your great-grandparents, things involving your DNA. God can work all those things out for your good. All things that are happening to you now, all things that we're experiencing as a nation now, God is working out for the good of his people. And all things that will happen in the days to come, even when you go home to be with the Lord, all things by God's sovereign power are going to accomplish a good purpose, a good purpose, and not a purpose that will always remain veiled from us. Someday we'll say, yes, it was good. We'll see it and we'll acknowledge it. So what is that good purpose that the loving and sovereign plan of God is working toward? Well, here's what it says. Verse 29, it says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. A grand plan to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good towards which he's moving us. Now, many people read that and say, I, I don't know if that's that great. To be conformed to the, to become more and more like Jesus? You know, what I want to be is, really what I want to be is healthy. What I want is more money so I can pay my bills and maybe live it up a little. What I want is more friends. What I want is more free time. But to be like Jesus, I don't know. I want immunity from disease. I want to be free of pain. I want to be able to sleep at night. Those are good things. Why is this a good thing to become more and more like Jesus? So I think for many people, this promise, well, it falls flat. We say, why is this a promise? I don't really long for this. But those who love Jesus love this promise. This is exactly what we want. To have intimacy with God the Father the way Jesus did. To be living with joy and confidence through life the way Jesus did. To have clarity and wisdom about what is right and righteous and good the way Jesus did. To be compassionate and tender like Jesus was. To have in us holiness, delight in what is righteous. To be whole as Jesus was. 
And finally, as scripture says, to share the resurrection life of Jesus. Just as he rose from the dead to experience his promise that we also will be conquerors over death. Yeah, I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And the scripture says that's the good that's being accomplished even now in your life and in my life. That's God's intention for us. And so all things, all things work for that purpose. Except it says the coronavirus. Actually, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Not even a virus, not even an epidemic can stop this great work of God. I'm not saying we always see how the purpose is being accomplished. We surely don't. But we know who's in charge. That he's good and he's wise and that he loves us. And because of that, we say we're happy to be in your hands. Do your work in my life. I was thinking back to an epidemic which took place in the 18th century. And it involved a pastor who was in Northampton for many years, Jonathan Edwards. He was a great philosopher, writer. He was one of the leading lights in this revival called the Great Awakening. Towards the end of his life, Jonathan Edwards was invited to serve as the president of the New Jersey College, which subsequently became Princeton University. So in 1758, he moved to Princeton. His wife, Sarah, was to follow later. There was an outbreak of smallpox. And Edwards, who loved science, who wanted to promote science, in fact, wanted to promote people to get an inoculation against smallpox, got such an inoculation. When you look at how they did this, it's rather primitive and somewhat scary. I won't describe it for you here. But essentially, the idea was that people would get just a taste of smallpox and their body would build an immunity against it and they'd be safe. But in Jonathan Edwards' case, it didn't work that way. He came down with a severe case of smallpox and in just a few months, at age 54, he died. His wife, Sarah, who had not yet joined him, wrote to their daughter, Esther, And here's what she said. I've always loved this letter. Let me share it with you. It's just a short portion of it. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, my husband, for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. There I am and love to be. Even in this crisis, even in this tragedy, even in this unbearable sadness, that's where I love to be. I'm in the hands of my God, and I would have it no other way. There I am and there I love to be. Always In every sickness, in every circumstance, in illness or in health, this great king, the lover of your souls, the one who holds you in his hands is for you. He's for you. He's for you. So God is sovereign, and this sovereign God is for you absolutely. And the third thing is nothing can separate you from his love. This really follows from the first two things I've said. And the closing verses of chapter 8 echo this. If you don't mind, I'll read them again because they are so beautiful. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
or tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written for your sake, we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his love. I think to many of us, love is by its very nature ephemeral. You know, it's a feeling, it's an emotion. You try to grab it, it vanishes. It's kind of like grabbing smoke. It's easy to believe that that kind of love would not last and that there'd be many things that would separate us from that love. Sometimes we think that we're loved because we're pretty, beautiful, attractive. We're loved because we're useful to other people. We're loved because of what we can do, how we can perform before other people. And if we believe that, and if we especially believe that about God's love with regard to us, then we will always be uncertain of his love. And friends, what we believe affects the way we live. If we believe a lie, and that would be a lie, it'll affect the way we live. It's like that story you may have heard about an elephant when he was a baby was tied to a stake in the ground. A rope around his neck, the other rope on that stake. And the baby tugged and pulled at it and it was useless. He wasn't strong enough to pull that stake out of the ground. Well, you know, he tried for many months, maybe even for a year, but after a while he realized this was futile, so he gave up. Well, as time went on, he grew. He got bigger and bigger and bigger and soon he was much stronger than that stake on the ground. But he believed that that stake was stronger than him. And so he never tried to pull it out after that. So that weak little stake that he believed, a lie, the lie that he believed, held him bound and chained. I think the same thing is true. If we believe a lie about God's love, it will undermine our confidence in him. And so here scripture tells us the truth. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that's tied into the sovereignty of God, isn't it? Our sovereign God, as the psalmist said, does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. And here's the thing, it pleases God to bless you. It pleases God to hold on to you with his love. If he was not sovereign, think what would happen. If there was some being that was stronger than him, if there was some power, if this virus that we're talking about was really more powerful than God, then how could we have confidence in him? Because then there'd be something outside of his control. Things that he... We'd be forced to do, you might say. How could we rely that he could work all things out for our good? But praise God that he is sovereign. It means that everything in our life, the whole atmosphere of our life is infused with his kind purposes for us. We can't escape it. And nothing can separate us from his kind purposes for our lives. I'm not pretending we always understand that. In other words, I don't know about cause and effect. If you ask me, what is God's purpose in this and that, and how does that lead to a good end, I will throw up my hands. I'll say, only God knows. Very often that's true. I've shared with you before the story of taking my daughter, one of my daughters, to the doctors. You know, she had this raging fever and he had to put an IV in her arm because she was dehydrated. And he was short on nurses. And so he said, could you hold her down while I do this? So 
here was a two-year-old little girl and I was holding her down and she was screaming and looking up at me and that's the thing that breaks my heart. She would be looking at me, why are you doing this? Why are you holding me down? Why are you letting this mean man poke me with that sharp needle? She had no understanding of what was going on. And yet it really was for her good, wasn't it? There's no way that I could explain it to her. There's no way that she could understand. And often we're in exactly the same situation. Wouldn't God, wouldn't God sometimes hold us down and say, trust me, trust me, I'm doing this for your good. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to say God is for us. It's not something we should take lightly because it's only been accomplished by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus for us. But God is for us. Why? Well, Paul gives several reasons. May I just point to these three as we draw things to a conclusion. First, God gave his son for me. Verse 32. Here's how I know he's for me. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God was willing to do that, every other thing we need in life is peanuts. It's easy. God is for me because he's willing to give Christ Jesus for me. Secondly, God justified me. Verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. I think every sensitive person has a keen sense that they've done wrong, a sense of their failure, a sense of regret about the past. Who wouldn't? I certainly do. We all want a do-over, really a do-over and over and over again, usually. And so we sometimes wonder, you know, how can I stand? I face criticism from other people and maybe I face criticism from God. But here it says, God himself has justified us. The high judge the supremest of all courts, so who is there to condemn us? If the high court, the highest court, has declared us immune from every charge, has cleared us of every failure before him because of the cross of Jesus, then what court could anybody take any charge against us to? Who is there to condemn us? Thirdly, God loves me. God loves you. And that's verses 33 through 39, which I read. The lover of your souls is this omnipotent God. And lovers go to great lengths to bring joy and blessing to the ones they love. I know you've done this too, I'm sure. They're willing to risk their lives. They're willing to give up everything in order to be with the one they love. Remember Edward VIII in 1936 who gave up the throne to be with Mrs. Simpson because he loved her. And recently, of course, there's the prince and Meghan who have given up royal titles because they love each other, because they love their son. People do extravagant things for the sake of love. Imagine what God will do for you because he loves you. Nothing can stand in his way. That's what Paul closes with. Not death, not life, not a virus, not calamity, not trouble, not even the good things in life which could distract you from the Lord Jesus. Not angels or demons, not any supernatural force in the whole universe can keep you from his love. Not the present or the future, not what you have done or not what has been done to you or not what you will do in the future. That can't keep you from the love of God. 
nor height, nor depth. That means from the highest heaven to the deepest earth, there's nothing that exists that can keep you from the love of God. And then, just in case, almost like a lawyer would, he says, or anything else in all creation. He says, in case I've missed anything, in case in your darkest nightmare, you think of some apparition which brings fear to your heart, that's also covered. Even that can't keep you or separate you from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. So as I close, I want to say, brothers and sisters, settle these truths in your heart and it'll affect, it'll bless the way you live. It changes the way you live. What you think affects how you live, affects how you handle challenges, how you settle your hearts, how you answer your fears when these epidemics strike. The ancient Greeks had a goddess of victory named Nike, and you know she had a wreath, and she was winged, and the shoe company has, of course, taken her name because they want to promise that they can bring victory. Well, in this text in Romans 8, there's also a brand name, you might say, that Christians wear. It's in verse 37. In our translation, it says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. A very literal translation, you might say a transcription of this would be, we are more than super conquerors. That's what we are. We overwhelmingly conquer. Why? Because, yeah, we'll face challenges. We'll face persecution, accusation. There'll be attacks on our minds. There'll be things that make our hearts quake. That'll make our souls even doubt our standing before God. There'll be epidemics which threaten our bodies and threaten our loved ones. But in all of this, there is a note of victory because ultimately, God and his love wins for his people. So we are more than conquerors in all these things. So friends, this week, when you hear the news, be wise. Respond to it. Do the right thing. But don't let your hearts quake. Say these three things. First, God is sovereign, and this good God does whatever he pleases. Secondly, say this. This sovereign God is for me. It means that I am in God's omnipotent grip now and forevermore. And thirdly, nothing, nothing, because of that, nothing, nothing can keep me from his love. There's a songwriter who wrote a song which I love, and here's one verse. Let me close with this. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, O come with blissful ray, Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? And the Lord says, yes, because underneath you are the everlasting arms. Let me pray. Lord, our God, we are so glad that you reign. We do praise you and we rejoice that you reign. Our hearts are glad in it, Lord. And we're so glad, Lord, that you have set your love upon us, this love which will never release us, never let us go makes our hearts sing with praise. It replaces fear with faith and assurance. It makes our quaking hearts stop and consider the great infallible promises that you've given to us. Promises to love us now and forevermore. Gladly, Lord, gladly we commit our lives, our hearts, and those of our loved ones into your hands. In the name of Jesus we pray it. Amen. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11 there's this wonderful promise for all of us. Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden. Labor is the things we do, the pressures we put on ourselves, the worries that overwhelm us. Heavy laden are the things that come to us from outside, 
Could be from other people or institutions. Could be things like epidemics. Could be the fears that are whispered into our ears. And I pray, as you leave, I pray that God will bless you with his grace so that you will accept Jesus' invitation and that as you come to him with your labors and the burdens with which you're laden, that God will give you what he promises in Christ Jesus. He'll give you rest. God bless you. Amen.